Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor, Stephen Bush, while Anush is away on holiday. I hadn't realised before that Anush and Stephen Bush rhyme. On this week's episode, Stephen and I talk about Dawn Butler being stopped by the police, and you ask us, how would you define middle class? So as we are recording, Keir Starmer has just tweeted a response to the news that Don Butler, Labour MP and former deputy leadership candidate, was stopped by the police yesterday in an incident that she has described as, as racial profiling. She has accused the Metropolitan Police of. And there's been a bit of a an outcry on Twitter since at the silence from Keir Starmer and his front bench. And right before we started recording, he did he did tweet something about it, which has been accused by some people of being a bit mealy-mouthed. Oh, and it's also worth saying before before we start talking about it, that Dwan Butler has also received a horrific amount of abuse over this and people not taking her account seriously and making some kind of dubious claims that she has doctored the video or isn't producing the full video. Stephen, what are your immediate thoughts about this, Rao? Yeah, it's also, I guess I hadn't really thought about it through the prism of the, like, I think Rachel Reeves was the first and up until about a minute ago, only only person in the shadow cabinet to have done mm. a statement on it. I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it, because, I mean, I'll be honest, I mean, one of my, like, rules, and I don't always follow, but one of my rules for life is because weekend Twitter is always so rancid, is to try and avoid doing any discourse beyond, I watched a film or read, read a book that I liked, or I'm glad Arsenal <laughs> won because Twitter is so deeply unpleasant. And I just looked at it, I just thought, oh, no, no. I Like, the double whammy of that and this um, ongoing BBC row about them, like, using the N-word live on air, because it was important to add the context. It just, well, actually, it really wasn't. So the thing that I found slightly embarrassing about it, as someone who wangs on about police reform, is I hadn't realised until this weekend that when I was writing about stop and searches, those figures were literally just for, like, being stopped on the street. I didn't realise that there was this whole other thing of, like, when you're stopped in a car, the none of the, like, diversity and monitoring data that is held about street searches is held for searches in cars. I think, you know, like, the kind of predictable response, including from, you know, big-name journalists about, like, oh, you know, she edited the video, she hadn't, oh, she inverted it, oh, was the driver actually white? The kind of litigating of the circumstances of the video was kind of just like, kind of 
grimly predictable, but also kind of just sort of epically misses the point, right? We we statistically know, right? Depending on which part of the country you are in, your chances of being excessively policed go up on up and down depending on what your racial identity is. In some parts of the country, you have a particularly acute risk of that if you are from a Gypsy, Roma or Irish traveller background. In most of the capital, you're more likely to be stopped and searched if you are black than you're white. And also, you know, right, actually, the, the biggest proof that like they shouldn't have done it is that they have apologised within less than 24 mm-hmm. hours. And, you know, to kind of, you know, only long-term NF podcast listeners will know this version of Stephen Bush, but to continue my, like, lonely pursuit of one of the few members of the Justice for Andrew Mitchell campaign, right, that is considerably, that is a much speedier rate of apology than Andrew Mitchell, who, who we shouldn't forget, did eventually get an apology about part of what happened here. So I kind of think, right, the the idea that, like, there wasn't an open and shut a number plate was put in when there was no need for it to be one. And in the context, because obviously people always always love it when I bring in hackney politics, the, the context is is that there has there have also been concerns raised by the local council here that our local police force has been using stop and search in an excessive way. And I guess the kind of the things God I worryingly shows how institutionalized I've become about this issue, that I realised my immediate response was to be like, well, how does this fit into like the wider problems of police reform. I think the two things it exposes is one, it's lunacy, then the data on stopping people in a car is held and collated in a different... I mean, I think there's a case for treating it differently, right? Yeah, as in like, you know, being like, and now I'm looking at this data, and now I'm looking at this, you know. One of the things that the British state is actually very good at, we saw this with, uh, with COVID, is actually just holding information about different types of people and how different problems affect them is a really, really useful public policy lever for improving things. But it's insane then then it turns out that you actually can just still be like, yeah, stop the car. No, I don't need to know any information about him. Which yeah, was one of those things which when I discovered this watching Sky News yesterday, I was like Pow! and yeah, it was suddenly also made me realise that every time I've written about stop and search, because it has been a stop and search and it's triggered with it, I just assumed that some of those figures were about transport. The other kind of element of all this then I think it shows again is the the Metropolitan Police in its current form I think is too large I think yeah one of the ways you get improvements in any institution is when you can make useful and meaningful comparisons between them we have a situation where borough police force have a lot of operational responsibility and therefore your policing experience as it were can be quite different borough to borough but if a police force locally is doing something very well and they're within the 32 boroughs, they don't get that much credit. And there's no opportunity for anyone to learn from that approach. And if they're doing something badly, well, you know, it kind of gets like subsumed into the like wider narrative of, of the Met, which actually at, on, on the whole, although there have been some several very high profile shocking examples recently, on the whole, in terms of the effectiveness of stop and search, right? So if you broadly accept them like the problem slash trade-off with all of these things is the what one criminologist calls the Darth Vader Luke Skywalker problem he's talking about algorithms right so yeah if you have an algorithm what you want it to do is you show the difference between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and you have a question of you want to minimize the number of Darth Vaders who you erroneously tag as Luke Skywalkers or do you want to maximize the number of Darth Vaders you you catch now, with stop and search, actually, we have a, a much simpler metric, which is that broadly we can fairly say that police forces which are 
successfully charging or arresting someone after a stop and search are visibly doing a better job of it. You obviously have to look very carefully at what they're being arrested for, because obviously if you arrest someone after a stop and search for going, fuck off, why are you searching me? Well, that's probably not actually a particularly effective use of it. But we know that some police forces use it very poorly. Some forces use it very well. I wrote about that in some detail in the context of COVID fines recently. But within London, a pretty huge area, we have no way of reliably doing that because we have this kind of idea that we have one police force, which we sort of do for some cross-city issues. But we do also, in many ways, have 32 police forces. Sorry, I realised I said before we went on air, you know, I'm not sure I have very much to say about this. And I have done like a full round the houses about criminal justice. Well, yeah, you, you really did deliver, um, which is good, you know, in, in August as, as things get quiet. Yeah, I, I actually, until you said that, also didn't realise that the stop and search data is different to the data on people being stopped in their cars. I mean, I think my prevailing feeling about Don Butler being stopped the other day was the, the horrible similarity to that case just at the start of July with the athlete from Team GB, the, the sprinter, Bianca Williams, who was stopped with her partner and their baby and handcuffed. And um, she went public about it and, and, and similarly accused the Met Police of, of racial profiling. And I think before the Bianca Williams story, I hadn't really heard very many prominent news reports of, of stopping black people like that rather like as distinct from other forms of stop and search and yeah in both in both cases I think the the thing that Dawn Butler and Bianca Williams have highlighted was you know the lack of a reason and um, I think in, in the case of Bianca Williams it was that they found it suspicious that her partner had such a nice car which was um, I think one of the things suggested to Dawn Butler when she was speaking to the police as well as well as the fact that they mistakenly thought that the car was from Yorkshire. But yeah, just the, I'm sure that we're going to see this again in the wake of Black Lives Matter. People, like very prominent, successful black people using their platforms to highlight these sorts of incidents and hopefully leveraging their prominence to do some good and to change attitudes around it. But I, I, I did kind of find it kind of, sad and in a perverse way watching the the footage that was on Sky News a clip from the footage that Dawn Butler had recorded where she says you know at one point I think kind of later on in her discussion she she just says look I'm a member of parliament and I think you can you can see the police officer's body language change slightly and I mean I think that it's great that there are people in positions to highlight the situations that they're finding themselves in and to hopefully do something about it but I just thought you know there are going to be so many people in Dawn Butler's situation who aren't able to to play the MP card. You know, it's, it's great that she was able to, but, 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 you know, until very recently, I think this was happening a lot and, and we weren't able to see anything about it. But I suppose more broadly, your main takeaway was about police reform, whereas, as you can tell from the way I opened it, I think I, my main interest in this has been, again, the the question of, how Keir Starmer relates to questions of racism and the justice system. I think that there is a a perception, it maybe isn't even that widespread, but I think there has been a perception among some groups that, that he just hasn't really done enough or said enough on this. His, his response was kind of accused of being a bit mealy-mouthed because given the way 
Labour hopes to sort of politically position themselves. I think they are reluctant to be too critical of the police or they know that there are some parts of their electoral coalition who just don't respond very well to to the suggestion that the police is systemically racist or any of those big structural criticisms and that they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place on this and not, and not really offering Dawn Butler the public support that, that she maybe ought to have expected. So there's a kind of funny tone in tweets now from Keir Starmer, also from Nick Thomas-Simmons, the Shadow Home Secretary, where they're sort of saying their support for Dawn Butler, but it does read as kind of proving that that, that they did speak to her. And they, they are asserting that they have done something about this a, a little bit late in the day. Yeah, I mean, so this is the thing, I completely... So I completely agree. When like I first saw that he hadn't replied, someone tweeting, oh, you know, I just kind of, you know, and you just think like, oh, that can't be true. Surely I've got a statement about it in my inbox. Mm. Nope. Well, maybe it's on Twitter. No, maybe he just hasn't tweeted. Now, well, okay, obviously he doesn't tweet anymore to the extent he ever really did. But you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, okay. So what? What? So you know, what's what's taken so long? So I think it speaks to two things. I think one, it speaks to exactly as you say that political tension in their project, right? Which is the we don't want to have to talk about like any of this stuff which is divisive within our electoral coalition. We don't really want to have to get into a like standing thing about like could the police be better, could the police be bad, let alone, you know, any of the stuff about abolition or anything like that. And so you do get these kind of like statements like this. Added to that, right, there is the, I think, personal political divergence that and yeah, this kind of speaks, I guess, to the other thing, which isn't really a kind of Keir specific thing, but like the, a lot of the commentary around it from people who I frankly thought should know better about like, oh, but Dawn Butler has like said a bunch of stuff about Labour anti-Semitism, which is not great. And it's just like, yeah, do you know what? So have a bunch of white people. But last time I checked, I don't think any like anyone else, any of the people who've like written things using the word hoax are getting stopped and searched, right? Like, you know, like you can, you can, there are lots of legitimate criticisms you can make of like loads of people who worked for Jeremy Corbyn, but I, I somehow doubt that, you know, Seamus Milne, to use like the sort of preferred bogeyman of some people in that, in that setup is, you know, is, is being like stopped and frisked on a, a way to his Jag. I'm not sure if he has a Jaguar, but it's in, perfectly plausible that he has one and completely implausible that he would be stopped on the way. I suspect there was also an element, which I think is also, you know, not great, of kind of like, have we seen this? Do we know what's going on? Et cetera, et cetera. Although, of course, I say that and then I suddenly, suddenly occurs to me, partly because our fan has suddenly stopped working, that it is also equally August and like he doesn't tweet himself and both of his senior press officers are off. So maybe I'm reading a whole bunch of things about uh, my kind of wider questions about the political approach that actually just don't apply in this specific case. But it does speak to that bigger problem, right? Which is the the other thing I found kind of striking about this. And in general, the thing I struggle about whenever I write about police reform, it just is like the land accountability forgot. If if I if you were to say we wouldn't shouldn't usefully compare league tables of schools, or uh, you know, to see how like you know one school with the same level of free school meals intake is performing versus the number of A to C's it gets versus another one, people would just be like, who is this left wing lunatic? who's in the pocket of the producer interest, who doesn't care about children. But like the second you kind of go, hmm, maybe we can learn something from the fact that broadly there are high-performing police forces which get 
good schools with HM, HMP Inspector, they may actually be doing the same number of stop and searches, but they're having to do far fewer for every person they actually successfully arrest. May, and, and then also it turns out that those ones are the ones which are least likely to have disproportionality in their COVID finding. Maybe they are just using these tools better and there are things that they could teach other police forces. And people are like, wow, geez, mate, you want to abolish the police now? And so I think the response does potentially illustrate, as you say, all of those kind of challenges of how you navigate doing that and trying to win power. And also the fact that, you know, I was about to say, I'm trying to win power. Right? Also, right, I think like we can sometimes kind of act like his law and order position is is primarily an artifact of his electoral strategy. I think actually like in terms of like Keir Starmer's thought, quite clearly being not pro-police is a slightly, feels like a slightly more kind of pejorative frame than I really want to put on it. But I think then that clearly is a key part of his actual politics. And it's part of the story of his political development from, you know, the early 80s to today is that his position has very visibly shifted on that issue, which does, of course, put you at odds with, you know, not very many voters, but a, a large chunk of the party's activist base. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point that it isn't it isn't necessarily just a strategy for his leadership at the moment, but but symptomatic of of more generally his position on on law and order. I don't know how to how to phrase this, but I, I think that basically I think Keir Starmer's positioning on quote unquote identity politics or culture wars issues is very interesting because he's doing very little of it. But I think it it kind of picks up on this question that we've talked about before on the podcast and that you've written about before, Stephen, I think of that difference between how people see Keir Starmer and how people see Labour, where we have someone like Dawn Butler, who's being like, I think, quite brave and very strident in her criticisms of the Met Police and the racism that she's experienced and is exposing herself to a lot of of, of abuse and and kind of just like exhausting criticism from as you say people who should know better and she's being very strident on it and lots of her colleagues are backing her up but the labor leadership either deliberately or not because as you say it is you know that was a sunday when that happened and it's august and people are on holiday and so on but what, whether deliberately or not the labor leadership has been sort of following rather than leading on that one and I think it's been happening, it, it has happened a few times with different Labour MPs in different ways where they are more strident on particular things than the leadership is. And in general, Keir Starmer's team have not really been putting forward that many policies so far. And, and I mean, you could argue, why would they in the middle of a pandemic when they don't need to? it's maybe too early to be saying exactly what they stand for when that's a little bit dangerous. I don't know what you think about that one, but yeah, they're not really saying much of, of what they stand for. And then you have Dawn Butler being very strident on this one and they seem a bit slow on it. Then there was, I mean, last weekend, I, I know with, with the big proviso of, of what you say about weekend Twitter, there was this, you know, big, big row that, you know, reached the Archbishop of Canterbury about Rosie Duffield's um, comments about trans rights and again whatever you make of that the Labour leadership has has really preferred to bury its head in the sand over that one and I just wonder how sustainable that is because Keir Starmer is not the whole Labour party and 
while they are being less punchy on these issues, I think that people will take the Labour position to be the the more prominent backbenchers in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, this is, that is a really good question. I hadn't thought about it at all through that lens, which is, as you say, right? Well, I, I, I'd link the two in that there's a conscious kind of like, you know, no culture war, please, kind of like approach than they have to all of mm. these issues. I guess it comes back to the question about stress testing, right? Which is, have have their attempts to pivot away from it, if, if they were about things that were happening on the national news or in a TV debate, or, you know, basically, if they're at a point where, like, you have to be able to close down the row as opposed to merely being like, I've commented, it's over. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it's something that's high salience, would I say that they have shown a particular aptitude for dealing with and um, expelling those problems, as it were? No. And that's what that I guess is the reason why at the moment I'd say it's not sustainable. Not because you can't like I think there's an infinite amount of time that you can just be like, I've done a mealy mouth statement on Twitter. I do genuinely think actually that is like one of the core strengths of, of their political project is that they are incredibly offline and, and just visibly don't care about that kind of thing. The problem is is that when they get to a point where they do have to do a statement you don't look at it and go, oh, well, you've, you've successfully tied a bow on that one. Mm. And I just don't see how, unless they Im- can improve on that element, these things aren't all going to kind of, well, not, not all, but something like it, right? It, it's one thing to be able to do like a unifying statement when it's something where like the difficulty setting has been like, well, in my perspective, turned all the way down to casual, right? Like the Coulston statue, right? Well, I visibly, obviously, and then entirely unsurprisingly in the pol- polling, the like unifying proposition was, I think, you know, we shouldn't have statues up to people whose sole achievement is owning people, owning people, and then, you know, giving people money that they made by owning people. But it should have been done through like the proper channels is whatever one thinks of that as a position is ultimately like, it's, it's a very easy answer. There's no, we don't yet know. And I think we have no evidence to believe that they would handle this type of situation well how they would like navigate and i urge our listeners if you want to be an example i think of how to do this effectively sadiq khan's video about the london bombing now there are lots of things that video was doing one of which was of course introducing himself to people who hadn't heard of them heard of him one of which was saying to like liberal londoners yeah i embody your values but the second was going don't worry i'm one of the good muslims but it did all of those things without annoying any of those audiences. Mm. And I'm not convinced at the moment that this is a setup that would be able to do that type of thing without really annoying people, which basically, in some ways, it's a bit like Corbyn's Brexit position, right? It didn't matter until the casuals noticed, and then the casuals noticed, and boy, oh boy, did it matter. Yeah, I mean, my impression is that maybe this is a bit too harsh. My impression is that the Labour leadership's positioning on these kinds of things is annoying almost everyone. Because I suppose like, if you take the kinds of people who really care about racial justice, who really care about trans rights, who care about any number of other issues that could be bracketed under culture wars or identity politics, anyone in that bracket will feel like any sort of position where you want to minimise those debates because they are indisputably divisive across the electoral coalition and like probably not what Labour wants to be talking about right now but like if you take that kind of position you are 
implicitly saying that those issues are lowered on your priority list, which is just not the political position of a lot of people in Labour. Like for a lot of people, those kinds of the terrain of identity politics is the stuff of politics itself, that you can't dial anti-racism down the agenda, you can't dial the you know LGBTQ rights, feminism, any of these issues down, down the political agenda. And your politics is meaningless without it. And certainly younger people, I think, given the kinds of the framework of intersectionality, as it's called in universities, I think a lot of people feel like that's very fundamental to their politics. So those people are basically already alienated by a a leadership that isn't going to be very strident on these things. But then I think because there are individual MPs who still do care about this kind of thing, because a lot of their base already has these kinds of instincts, they still do throw those people a bone every so often and are eventually, for example, with the Dawn Butler thing, do eventually come out in support of her. They're being a bit less strident in their criticism than Dawn Butler is herself, but they do ultimately like give credence to her perspective. And she is a Labour MP accusing the Met Police of institutional racism. So I think people who follow Labour politics less closely are still going to feel like Labour has called the police racist or, you know, that Keir Starmer took the knee for Black Lives Matter or whatever. And so in some ways, the people who also aren't following politics that closely and who don't like, quote unquote, culture war stuff, aren't going to like it either and I do kind of feel like the only way to resolve that is to is to take a lead on it if you don't want other people to be taking a lead on it or to be setting the narrative or to be always following up as you say either trying to ignore things or then releasing statements a little bit late or like with a little bit of a fudge I think that you you end up in a situation where um your position is still misunderstood and maybe the only way of getting around that is if you are put trying to mount your own argument on certain things like I think on trans rights it just strikes me that the Labour position is is totally unsustainable in that like different MPs openly say things that aren't really Labour policy on trans rights anymore and there's no public cor- correction or anything from from the Labour leadership but also if you ask for a statement on it they will give you a kind of statement that does imply that that whatever the MP has said isn't quite in line with their policy. I just don't think it's sustainable and the only way of getting out of that would be suddenly to be on the front foot with it and to think what, what do we actually stand for rather than just batting away controversies as they arise. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So uh, this is a question, the person hasn't given their name, but thank you for sending it in. When I was a child in the 1970s, my grandmother, who grew up in the 1930s, told me that to be middle class is to have servants. What is the current defining characteristic of being middle class? So I think Stephen and I both liked this one because... um, Because we're (laughs) self-involved. I was going to say, because um, I feel like this this theme crops up in lots of our conversations. I was telling Stephen a couple of weeks ago, now that I'm home in Belfast, as I say in every podcast now, I was explaining to Stephen that I'd have to leave our meeting promptly on the dot of six because since I was a child... My family always eats dinner on the dot of 6pm, which you find very funny. And then we were saying that there's probably quite a lot of class politics around what time you have dinner at. And I think more broadly, the markers of, of being middle class, less so at the moment, but that used to be a, a real talking point on things like Twitter, or the kind of, you know, whether you shop at Waitrose and so on. But I'm interested in how you would define being middle class, Stephen beyond what time you have dinner well this thing is until this six o'clock revelation <laughs> that would have been one of my hard and fast um, rules but and i think it's odd because the interesting thing is in the first part when we were talking about stop and search i realized one of the very interesting i would yeah if you'd ask me what i was what i saw as the kind of economic and social crisis of the advanced economies it's that broadly many of the kind of things that we would associate with being um, middle class are out of reach for a growing number, uh, which I would broadly describe as private security. I don't mean as in, you know, having bouncers at your front door, but I mean as in, you know, you know, when, when you reach retirement, will you have a place that you own outright, then, you know, you can, then we'll then, you know, we'll basically, we'll see you out for the rest of your days. I would broadly have described that as kind of like the the difference between being middle class and, and anything else, right? And then, you know, you might not have like vast assets, but you have a house. And, you know, you are, you're broadly, you know, you are broadly going to be fine, sort of come what may at the, at the end of your kind of working life. But obviously that is increasingly a kind of niche, a niche quality. And I think it's quite striking that as the housing crisis has become more acute, not just here, but around the world, we kind of start to talk about middle classness as a kind of like, it's like, oh, it's like a state of mind. It's like cultural values. It's like, yeah, like ultimately like, oh, yeah, like you're middle class because you have a tote bag. And it's just like, yeah. Some would have said you were middle class because you had a house, but yeah, obviously, like the the interesting thing is in the the first part of this podcast when we were talking about you know when when you made your sort of very correct point about yeah, then she goes like, well, look, I'm a member mm. of parliament. For me, at least, the essence of like middle class privilege in a and I and I realise I'm yeah to kind of clarify, I'm I'm speaking very narrowly in an English sense here. I think so. Like you know, when my mum was was bringing up on her own, like it was a long period of time when she was on income support. She like, you know, in terms of like the income decile, she would notionally have always been working class. But the reason why I would always say, well, I had a middle class background is that she broadly had a kind of like a learned sense of entitlement and like an ability to like complain, to fight for me to get a correct dyslexia diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of those kind of like soft power advantages without which I wouldn't be here now. And then I think about like, you know, rightly or wrongly. My underlying assumption, like whenever I've been stopped and searched, is particularly when I do like my even posher voice. So not the one that people complain about me being too posh on the podcast with, but my even posher voice when I'm saying, oh, I'm dreadfully sorry, <laughs> officer. I actually, I can't do it. It's like one of those weird things where I'm aware I'm doing it when I'm talking to the police, but I feel I can't do it unprompted. But I, 
I realise I strongly believe that, you know, like my class privilege will get me out of that situation. Like, obviously, I, I also believe that I am suffering a distinct, like, racial penalty. But essentially, I kind of believe that, like, being middle class is, is like you like you have, like, these middle class tokens. And in the United Kingdom, at least, those tokens, you know, you might have to send, like, a peevish letter or do any of those things. But ultimately, like, the United Kingdom's class obsession will ultimately mean that, like, I'll be fine in that type of, like, interacting with authority style situation. And I kind of think at least, to me at least, that is the essence of being middle class. Now, in some cases, that's, like, obviously deeply deranged, right? You saw it with Brexit, right? Like a, a bunch of middle class people who did kind of basically seem to think that they could, like, send enough letters to the council for Brexit to be stopped. And it's like, no, 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 you do need to get parliamentary seats to do that. But yeah, that would be my kind of, kind of like a belief and like the literature of complaining. Yeah, like, whereas if you're like upper class, you just like phone the guy who runs the place because you know him or you own the land or something. I don't know, like you like, you know, you use your hard power. If you're middle class, you like believe perhaps wrongly that your soft power will bail you out. And essentially, if you are working class, there are obviously important uh, counterexamples to this. And like one of the ways that political organization can work is it like countermands that. But you are deprived of either hard or, or even soft power in most interactions. That's my very crude sense of it in England. What do you think? That's a very, very good way of categorizing it. I think that my instinctive feeling about the phrase middle class is that it has been meaningless for a very long time. That's actually the best categorization of it, you know, putting some meaning back into the phrase that I've heard in ages. I think because in my own experience, I just feel like middle class is so vast now that it covers pretty much anything from families who are still struggling who like you know maybe do own their own their own house but you know are just sort of trying to get by maybe don't have that much money don't even necessarily have that much cultural capital but you know just sort of like ordinary people who are who are a rung above struggling or markedly deprived right up up to sort of the the most privileged people that you find in London who don't think of themselves as upper class because pretty much no one apart from like Princess Eugenie or, you know, someone with, you know, an aristocratic title in their name or the child of a billionaire thinks of themselves as upper class. But I think that middle class extends to, particularly in London, and as I have sort of remarked since moving to London and also at university, middle class extends so far upwards in terms of privilege and, and sheer wealth that it, you know, it really does extend to to people who live in several million pound homes um, in central London, whose parents are senior figures at, I don't know, at the BBC or the civil service or in the judiciary or, you know, who are vaguely famous, who have several homes, who have like quite a lot of access and proximity to, to power or who are themselves in positions of power and don't even really appreciate that they are, you know, if you're a newspaper columnist oh that means you Stephen <laughs> but you know if you're if you you know if you're a newspaper columnist and you're sort of a beneficiary of quite a lot of wealth I think you know there's the upper echelons of middle classness are so far removed from the lower ebbs of middle classness that I haven't found it that useful I suppose certainly in terms of just 
noticing the distinction between what I would understand as middle class in Northern Ireland and then this whole new stratum of middle classness in England and it all comes under the same roof. You and I have spoken quite a bit before, I suppose, about cultural capital versus actual capital. And I do wonder if in the years to come, like you say about, you know, your middle class, if you own a tote bag, I do wonder if our per, if our understanding of middle classness will rest more on cultural capital than it will on actual capital, because even very middle class people of my generation will struggle to own property in lots of cases, unless, you know, through through their circumstances in the job market or because of, of being from one of those, the upper echelons of middle classness, they managed to, to own a house. But I think it will be maybe marked by and it comes back to that feeling of of having access to soft levers of power. I think maybe it will be marked by a university education and in lots of cases, a cultural hinterland, a sort of familiarity with books and politics and literature and music, the theatre and even certain food tastes and a penchant for occasionally shopping at Waitrose. If you have one, there is no Waitrose in Northern Ireland, by the way. People don't seem to realise that, which I think says a lot about the class system here, that that echelon doesn't exist. But we'll be defining this by by basically cultural capital, because the real capital will just see, I think, far greater levels of precarity, even among people from more middle-class backgrounds. And the traditional working class, I think, will become more marked by really considerable deprivation. Yeah, so that would be my that would be my sort of non-funny attempt to define middle classness. But I think, you know, the waitrose marker is a good one. I, also, if um if people ask you if if you ski <laughs> that they're middle class. If people are surprised that you haven't heard of tzatziki, which I only discovered was a thing. In my final year at Oxford, they're they're very middle class. Those are the markers. It's fascinating, that one, because no one has ever asked me if I ski, which I I don't. The Satiki thing is a really interesting one, right? Because in my mind, right, that is one of those things where it's just like, oh, yeah, but of course, like, in London, like, every, like, exciting food is also eaten by its, like, diaspora. And particularly the more recent a diaspora is, the more likely it is to just be, like, you know, working class and that's like yeah this, this is like in why in a way the state the state of mind stuff is, is is i mean obviously the whole thing is imperfect but i think it's a really interesting question in which we've doubtless self-incriminated mm. multiple times and we should we should get people to send us self-incriminating questions all the time you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me alvarez and stephen bush Our producer is Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.